this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode the rise of china is a global reality that has upset many international calculations to understand the growing chinese footprint it's important to understand the internal dynamics of the chinese communist party The Hindu's China correspondent Anand Krishnan has been reporting on the passage of what has been called a resolution on the major achievements of the party over the past century by the 6th plenum or closed door meeting of the party's central committee. The resolution elevates the country's current president and general secretary Xi Jinping to the status of Mao Zedong and reformer Deng Xiaoping. The writing on the wall also suggests that Mr Xi will have a third term as president and party leader. unlike his immediate predecessors Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin to talk about these changes and what they mean for the functioning of the party and the country i am joined by the hindus anand krishnan welcome to in focus anand thank you so much for having me amit tell us anand does this resolution herald the announcement of a personality cult in china no well, it's a great question amit what i will say it does do is i think uh, very clearly it does put xi jinping in the same bracket as mao zedong uh, as far as china's politics is concerned as far as the communist party of china is concerned going through the communique the actual resolution itself hasn't been publicized what we got on friday the day after everything concluded was a 5000 word communique that summarized the flavor of the resolution and i think going by the communique the thing that really hit me was how much space it devoted to xi jinping uh mao zedong was mentioned seven times deng xiaoping china's second tallest leader was mentioned five times xi jinping's two predecessors jiang zemin and hu jintao got single mentions and you had 17 mentions of xi jinping's name and his ideology so the main takeaway i think would be the messaging to people in china and to people within the communist party of china is that listen Xi Jinping is here to stay. I think the personality cult it obviously 2021 is not 1966. Uh, the world has changed, people have changed, Chinese society has changed. You aren't going to have uh, masses gathering waving little red books, but I would say what is equally significant if you go back to the first resolution on history that Mao Zedong passed in 1945, the second resolution on history that Deng passed in 81 and now 40 years later Xi's resolution the takeaway for me amit is that to say that this person cannot be challenged and that questioning this leader would be tantamount to questioning the party and i think that's extremely significant when you look at the context of next year's party congress which of course we can speak about in in more detail the two term limit uh, was scrapped for the chinese president back in 2018 so obviously preparations for this have been going on for a while Oh absolutely I wouldn't say anything really is shocking or surprising uh, in in this plenum and in the resolution that it passed uh, given that as you said I think the most significant decision that the Xi Jinping took was doing away with the two term limit which many people in China actually believed was a reason why it had political stability for two decades and the fact that very unusually for an autocracy 
it was able to actually have three peaceful transitions of power and transfers of power. By that, I mean from Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin uh, in 1992, Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao in 2002, and then Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping in 2012. And that's no small feat for an autocracy to come up with a system where you have power that's being passed on from one generation to another. So by doing away with that system, maybe in the short term, Xi Jinping has brought himself political stability by getting rid of his rivals and the like. But the big question, Amit, I think that's hanging over all of this is what happens after Xi Jinping? I mean, it's clear that we don't have to think about that for the next five years. Given that he's going to be in charge, it's clear, until 2027. What happens after that when you've done away with this system? I think that that's a question that people within China are concerned about as well, even though obviously I don't think they can speak about it. I can tell you that when I was, uh, I remember being in Beijing at the time when the announcement broke of doing away with term limits. And I think the initial aftermath was a sense of shock among people. I know it's become a cliche for journalists to quote taxi drivers, but I remember that I was happened to be in a cab driving back from covering the Great Hall of the People, the National People's Congress, when this was formalized. And I remember a taxi driver was shaking his head and telling me, my God, we are becoming like North Korea. But of course, there's this huge propaganda push that made it seem that China needed a strongman leader because of unprecedented global challenges, unprecedented domestic challenges. So some of that criticism has been muted by the party's propaganda effort. But I think that it does leave open this very serious question of what happens to China's political future, as well as a system that really brought a lot of stability uh, now that you're back to one-man rule. And that's what it is, uh, certainly. If you look at the text of the communique as well, it goes on talking about Xi Jinping being the core leader. And I think that's really, really important as well in terms of what it means for the Communist Party of China. So they've used the term um, from one of your reports that I picked up, core status and the party's helmsman. I think th those are the phrases uh, that have been used for him. Is that correct? That's right. So the core was something that was uh, first referred to five years ago at another sixth plenum. So the meeting we just had for our listeners, just to give some context, uh, was the sixth plenum or the sixth annual meeting of the Central Committee. So the Communist Party chooses a central committee, which has about 300 plus 370 members for a five-year term. And every five years, the central committee meets seven times. And each of their meetings usually focuses on one aspect of policy. For instance, the third plenum focuses on economy. The sixth plenum usually has been quite significant in China's history because it focuses on politics and political ideology. Now, the sixth plenum five years ago was when Xi Jinping was anointed this core leader. And the core leader essentially means formalizing the end of collective leadership. So the opposite of collective leadership, obviously, is having a core leader. And that's what happened five years ago. So this communique mentions that as well. But it seemed to have taken it a step further where the communique itself didn't mention the term helmsman. But the day after the plenum was finished, the Central Committee deputed a senior official from its uh, research policy research department to meet the press. And this person actually referred to Xi Jinping as the party's helmsman, which of course was a term only used for Mao. I, uh, speaking to China watchers, this has been read two ways. Uh, one, a group thinks it's significant that they called him this helmsman and essentially put him on par with Mao. But then the other group says, well, 
Xi Jinping didn't succeed in getting the communique to officially mention this. <laughs> so there's a little bit of gray area right right there in terms of the degree of, of how much he's actually pushed in terms of this terminology. But where there is no gray area, of course, Amit, is the fact that this is a one-man show right now. And clearly, it's going to be that way for the next five years at least. Anand, you know, uh, you you mentioned this transition from uh, Deng to Jiang Zemin and to Hu Jintao. Even in neighboring Vietnam, we've seen that come uh, every five years or come a party congress and Vietnam has a new leadership. So this seems to have worked quite well, both for Vietnam and for China. I mean, the real question is that we see a very powerful China, economically uh, very resilient country. I mean, is this change to, you know, the core leader or the core status? Is this uh, is this an assertion of power in a sense that you need a strong man um, at the helm, so to speak? Absolutely. And I think that uh, even though ostensibly this resolution and everything was about history and Xi Jinping's place in the, in the party's history, it's as much about the exercise of power in the future and the control of power in the future. And that's what it is. And that's exactly how it's going to play out, I think, uh, given that now you're saying that he's the core leader, you're saying that you're pretty much they aren't using those words, but you're saying that the Xi Jinping is synonymous with the party. So anybody who's criticizing Xi Jinping is criticizing the party. And by default, the Communist Party will say you're being you're criticizing China as well. So you're having this, you're kind of having this conflation of Xi Jinping, the man, the Communist Party, the country. And all of it, as you put it rightly, is all about power. It's about Xi Jinping's power and ensuring that he is in complete control over the party, the state, and the military for the foreseeable future. Obviously, I think if you go back to the last 10 years of Xi Jinping's rule, it's, it's pretty clear that I think the first five years was very much focused on corruption and anti-corruption. And the anti-corruption campaign was not just about tackling graft, which it did, but it was also about removing Xi Jinping's rivals, not just his contemporary rivals, but up-and-coming leaders of the next generation. Xi Jinping is a fifth generation leader, but what he did was he removed someone who everyone thought was going to be a key figure to succeed him, the sixth generation, who was Sun Jiangsai. And so the corruption campaign in his first term, what it did was weed out his rivals and alternate power centers. And by doing so, he changed the dynamic that we had over the last 20, 30 years, where you had different factions within the party and a kind of unwritten understanding where they would take turns at the helm. Uh, now all of that's gone. And uh, as I said earlier, Amit, for me, the big question is going to be what this means for China's future, as much as the party is now presenting this as a big uh, sort of moment of triumph for Xi Jinping, reflecting China's strength, reflecting China's position in the world. Uh, I think it does leave a lot of unanswered questions about China's political model, about how they're going to handle succession and what happens after Xi Jinping's time. And it's a huge question uh, when you look at every, all the positives of, of that the Chinese Communist Party is talking about in terms of China's economy booming, in terms of its military capabilities, the fact that overhanging all of that, you have a question of whether or not there may be political instability, I think is really is something that's a very, very significant, unanswered question. Anand, in the past few years, you know, uh, whether it is India or whether it is Taiwan, or whether it's the South China Sea, there's been quite a strong assertion by the Chinese leadership about, you know, what their rights are and, you know, what they will do. So 
it's been a in a in a sense a much tougher face of china as it were are we likely to see more of the same in the next 5 years i think uh, it is safe to assume that uh, you certainly will see more of the same given the way they are framing china's position in the world given the way china's communist party is framing xi jinping's role in in some of these disputes that you mentioned uh, it was quite interesting that two days before this plenum the official xinhua news agency published this huge uh, lengthy profile of xi jinping which kind of went viral on twitter for some of the flowery language that it used calling xi jinping a man of profound thoughts etc but one interesting line in this profile that caught my attention was that it said how he had taken a hands-on personal role in strategic and tactical planning uh, including it said on the india china boundary on the disputed Diaoyu Senkaku Islands with Japan and the South China Sea, uh, and I think as you said, we've seen this gradual assertion of power. Uh, in some sense, I think it began before Xi Jinping's time in the South China Sea, where you had uh, end of Hu Jintao's rule, a, a greater sort of effort uh, to sort of create these artificial islands and enforce China's claims. Although the line of actual control with India. you still had both sides even though you had intermittent disputes on lac perception come up every year or so uh, whether it was depsang in 2013 or chumar the following year generally they would resolve within the scope of the four boundary agreements that india and china had uh, previously agreed to and there was no inkling really that the chinese side was questioning the validity of those agreements uh, even up until Xi Jinping's visit to India in 2019 so i think the big shock of 2020 was for whatever reason perhaps it reflects what happened in other theaters as well that they feel that they are in a position of strength and they no longer are bound by past agreements you saw that play out in terms of hong kong as well where i'm sitting right now where you had china actually bound by a commitment uh, in 1997 to preserve hong kong's status for 50 years but what you saw Uh, last year in 2020 with the passing of this national security law which was essentially redefining the premise of the one country two systems model again it showed that china felt was in a position of strength where it could reinterpret past agreements and i think it's that's what's happening i think on some level with the boundary with india where we focus a lot on the deployments but i think it also raises this larger question of china believing this now in a position of strength where doesn't have to be beholden by what it uh, previously said it would do and i think that's really a question of concern as far as india is concerned when we are asking how are we going to manage the boundary with china uh, are we going to have to start from scratch if none of these agreements are now going to be respected and i think that means to come back to your question i think it certainly means that you're going to see a continued period of volatility and unpredictability on the india china front Anand, related to this, under President Hu Jintao and Premier Wen Jiabao, you know, India signed, as you mentioned, several significant agreements uh, on the boundary question, and uh, in a sense, also, I recall uh, going with uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee to Beijing, and you know, for instance, the Chinese agreement on Sikkim. You know, once the agreement was made. i remember when jiabao presented prime minister vajpayee with a new map which showed sikkim squarely as part of india so perhaps that was a you know in a sense a softer face of the chinese leadership would you agree with that or is there insufficient knowledge about these things 
I would say so. If you look at the Vajpayee visit that you mentioned that and the agreements during that phase, which included not just the recognition of Sikkim by China, but uh, the in 2003, the setting up the special representatives mechanism. Yeah, yeah. And the border agreement, uh, the the principles, I think that agreement was also announced. That's right. You had the political parameters in 2005 and, of course, in 2012, the border defense cooperation agreement. I would agree with you. I would say that it's fair to assume that at that point of time, they did feel that it was in their interest to have peace on the border. And even if they were serious strategic, there were always going to be uh, strategic differences between India and China. Even the very simple fact that China kind of sees itself, or even at that time, saw itself as a dominant power in Asia. Now, of course, may see itself as being one of the dominant powers in the world, which is something that they are aware of, is something that India would never accept. So despite the fact that you had at the heart of the relationship, you had this problem. I think at that phase that you mentioned, they certainly did seem to think it was in their interest to keep the border peaceful. We should also add, Amit, that during that phase, they really built up the infrastructure on the border, uh, and which enabled them to build the roads, railway lines, and forward positions that enabled them to do the kind of deployments they did last year. So it was a question of also building up their capabilities and now testing them out. And I think that there were signs towards the flag end of Hu Juntao's period as well, that they were becoming more muscular and assertive. You saw that in Depsang in 2013. Shumar the following. Of course, that happened when Xi Jinping first came to India in 2014. There was a lot of speculation at the time whether there was something that the PLA did to kind of cast a shadow on that visit. So I think there were signs of greater tension that, that the agreements were coming under stress. Uh, and I think that what happened in 2020 was a clear statement of intent from China that in their view, they have the power now to do as they see fit to go up to their version of the LAC and there's no need for them to respect past agreements. For whatever reason, they came to that conclusion. I think the big question for me is, were they aware of the consequences or not? I think both answers are kind of uh, worrying. If they were aware of the consequences that it would lead to this fallout with India and, and this huge disjunction in the relationship, that means that they've taken a decision uh, that they want confrontational relations with India. And now if the answer to this question is no, that they thought they could push up and pretty much occupy disputed territories all along the LAC and think India wouldn't respond. It also tells you that there are serious issues in terms of their uh, their leadership and the way policy is made in China. So I think both those answers are kind of don't really give you a lot of assurance or confidence in terms of how they plan to handle the boundary. Anand, before I let you go, uh, I want to ask one more question, which is about China's relationship with the United States. Uh, we saw uh, recently at COP, uh, they announced an agreement on climate. And we have seen in the past also that rhetoric is raised from both sides and eventually there is dialogue and you know a new meeting is planned between the two leaders of the two countries. How, how do you see this equation uh, play itself out? Because obviously, I think China does view the United States, uh, you know, especially post-Afghanistan, as a seemingly weaker power than it was. Yeah, as you said, there's been this interesting dynamic of them falling out and then trying to make up. And there were signs of that from Trump to Biden uh, in terms of the Biden administration wanting to work with them, which they kept saying on things like climate. But I would say, I mean, that despite the climate agreement, which I think seems to be a little, not, a little bit of hot air 
and it doesn't really do much beyond what Obama and Xi Jinping agreed so many years ago. But I think that uh, on a fundamental basis, it seems that whether it's a Republican administration or Democrat administration, there seems to be a realization in the U.S. that it's going to be a confrontational relationship. Uh, I think there's a, it's also very clear from what you hear from the Chinese side, even though they say, the, the diplomats say that they don't believe it's a new Cold War and the like, that it's very clear that the Chinese believe that it's their time to push back more uh, on issues like Taiwan that matter a lot to the U.S. They've already done what they've done in Hong Kong, which the U.S. continues to highlight. Uh, Xinjiang, what China has done as well, is I think the are three issues that certainly are going to come up uh, when Biden and Xi have this virtual summit on November 16th. And I don't expect them to make headway on, e- on any of those issues. You're going to have the U.S. sort of repeat its, its position. You're going to have the Chinese push back against that. I think they will. the big difference from the Trump era may be maybe slightly less rancorous tone. Um, maybe some of the consulates that were shut down during the Trump era, they might be opened. Uh, I think some of the restrictions on Chinese students and visas may be loosened. Uh, and the Chinese may reciprocate in terms of taking steps to sort of address some of the concerns of U.S. companies, uh, even though I think some of the broader trade tensions aren't going to go away because they are quite fundamental and structural. So I think this confrontational tone is here to stay, uh, even if you might have a little bit of calibration and adjustment uh, from what you saw in the Trump era, which, of course, was really full of ups and downs for four years. There's never a dull moment on the U.S.-China front. I think that tenor will change uh, with the Biden administration, but it's very, very difficult to see, Amit, how they're really going to even address some of these issues where both sides are very clearly kind of digging in their heels in terms of what their expectations are. Anand Krishnan in Hong Kong, the Hindus China correspondent, thank you very much for talking to the In Focus podcast. We'll be returning to you from time to time for more updates and insights. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Amit. Thank you so much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.